Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. All right, folks, it's, uh, it's the season finale. Uh, all good things must come to an end. Uh, this has been season 12 of Finding God in the Music. Um, our theme has been songs that make you think. By the way, beginning next Sunday, I mean, one thing comes to an end, another thing begins. So Finding God in the Music is coming to an end. And starting next Sunday, I'm going to do a six-Sunday sermon series. In the beginning... Finding Jesus in Genesis. So starting next week, we're going to find Jesus in Genesis, but right now we're still finding God in the music. So who's the artist? Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. You think I use him every year. I don't. This is only the fourth time in 12 years I've used him. Uh, That ties him with Dave Matthews' band for most appearances. Second place. Uh, First place is still U2 with five appearances because every song they do is a sermon. They can't help themselves. And so it's just too easy to use them. Uh, No, it's Bob Dylan, fourth appearance. Uh, Look, if the theme is songs that make you think, maybe we ought to go with the Nobel Prize laureate. I mean, yeah, lots of people win Grammys. But Dylan was awarded the Nobel Prize for literature for literature because Dylan's hundreds and hundreds of songs constitute a body of literature that is among the richest in the English-speaking world. It's that significant. Now the song I have chosen is an obscure song. I think only hardcore Dylan people will know this song. It's got an interesting background. The song is John Brown. That's the name of the song. John Brown. You probably haven't heard it. Bob Dylan wrote it in 1963 when he was 22 and still unknown. I mean, he, I don't think his first album had even come out yet. He wrote it, he recorded it merely as a demo, and it was never released. He performed it only twice in coffee houses, little, you know, small coffee, tiny coffee houses, the Gaslight and one other one, in 1963, when he was 22 before he was known. The song, John Brown, he sang it twice in public and didn't sing it for 25 years. And then as America began to go to the wars in Iraq, he started doing this song because it is a song that talks about war. And so a song that he wrote, never released, never officially recorded, and only did twice, 25 years later he pulls it back up and starts doing it. In the 1990s, um, MTV's Unplugged series became popular. Anybody remember Unplugged? Made really popular by, first by Eric Clapton, his Unplugged session, and then Nirvana. Those are the two that really stand out. And these were where MTV would invite artists to come in and do acoustic sets. Not heavy, not electric, but acoustic. 
And in November of 1994, they asked Dylan to do an unplugged session, which there's a bit of irony about that, if you know. You know, the whole thing was, he was the guy that plugged in and made everybody mad. Judas! And now they say, well, how about you unplug, Dylan? And so he did an unplugged uh, session, acoustic session, in New York City on November 17, 1994, and he performed uh, John Brown. And so that becomes the only time, that, that's, that's how you'll now hear this song. And because that one was recorded and then released officially. I remember when it came, it didn't come out until about halfway through 95, but I remember when that album came out and the video, the DVD, I got those two. And that song hit me. And you know what it did? I'm telling you the truth. It made me think. I'm like, hmm, that song will make you think. And so that's the song that I'm going to show you and and used to set up what I want to say in preaching the gospel today. Now, listen, you, you here are fine. You there, you will not find this on YouTube. I promise you. If you do, it'll be gone in, you know, two minutes. Nobody polices harder than Dylan and Columbia Records. Their stuff is not out there uh, for, you know, unless they want it out there. So what you got to do is you got to go to wolc.com slash music videos and... One version or another will be there. Now, if you've got like Spotify or Apple, you can stream it. But we've got a, the video from that session. And the lyrics, I think, if we don't get busted, we'll see what happens. And, uh, but anyway, we're, we're going to try to get it to you. Those of you here, you're going to be fine. And so, 1994, New York City, Bob Dylan, Unplugged, John Brown. was proud of him he stood so straight and tall in his uniform and all his mama's face broke out into a grin oh son you look so fine i'm glad you're a son of mine make me proud to know you weren't a gun do what the captain says light a metal seal again we'll put him on the wall when you get home that old train pulled out john's mom began to shout Standing everybody in the neighborhood That's my son is about to go He's a soldier now you know She made while sure her neighbors understood She got a letter once in a while Her face broke into a smile She showed him to the people from next door They bragged about her son With his uniform and gun In this thing she called a good old-fashioned war Then the letter ceased to come for a long time they did not come Ceased to come for about ten months or more See, when letter finally came Saying go down and meet the train Your son is coming back from the war She smiled and she went right down She looked up and all around She did not see her soldier son inside When all the people passed She saw her son at last When she did, she could not believe her eyes his face was all shot off and his hands were blown away and he wore a metal brace around his waist he whispered kind of slow in a voice she didn't know and she couldn't even recognize his face
son Tell me what they've done How is it that you come to be this way? He tried his best to talk But his mouth could hardly move And his mother had to turn her face away Don't you remember, Mom? When I went off to war You thought it was the best thing I could do I was on the battleground You were home acting proud You weren't there standing in my shoes Well, I thought when I was there Lord, what am I doing here? Trying to kill somebody or die trying But the thing that scared me most When my enemy came close I could see that his face looked just like mine And I could not help but think Through the thunder roll and stink I was just a puppet in a play Been through the raw and smoke The string it finally broke And a cannonball blew my eyes away song make you think make you think there's a lot going on in that song it appears to be set let's say it sounds like it's world war one and it's about a proud mother and her young son who goes off to war one of the things the song does is challenge romantic notions about war the false ideas that the mother had that is all just about medals and glory. The song confronts us with the true brutalities of war, and the mother is forced to see it for the first time in her son. But that's the real genius of the song. The, the mother is forced to see it. The genius of the song is how it works with eyes and light. I'm doing a little bit of literary analysis here. The song works with sight and blindness and darkness and light. So the mother goes down to the train station as her son's coming back to war. And the song says, she smiled and she went right down. She looked up and all around, but she did not see her soldier son in sight. When all the people passed, she saw her son at last. And when she did, she could not believe her eyes. So eyes and sight and seeing. 
The key to the song is how the son, John Brown, that's his name, John Brown went off to war to fight on a foreign shore. The key to the song is how John Brown had his eyes opened as he goes blind. Well, I thought when I was there, Lord, what am I doing here? Trying to kill somebody or die trying. But the thing that scared me most was when my enemy came close, I could see that his face was just like mine. And I couldn't help but think. These are songs that make you think. And I couldn't help but think through the thunder rolling and stink. I was just a puppet in a play. And through the roar and smoke, the string it finally broke and a cannonball blew my eyes away. John Brown is blind, but now he sees. He's blind, but now he sees. You see how it's an homage to Amazing Grace? I once was blind, but now I see. Well, John Brown is now blind, but now he also sees. And these are things that Jesus talks about a lot. Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 44. Then Jesus cried aloud, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in darkness. One of the major themes in John's gospel is darkness and light, blindness and sight. In fact, those words occur in John's gospel over 150 times. Darkness and light, blindness and sight. It's in the light of Christ that we see truth. It's in the light of Christ that we see ultimate truth. It's in the light of truth that we see the light of God, the truth of God. And without the light of Christ, we are blind and we are controlled. We are enslaved. We are captive to forces we cannot see. Or as Bob Dylan says in John Brown, just a puppet on a string. Jesus came so we could see. Jesus came to set us free. So let me preach the big gospel story today. All right? Can I do that? Because I'm going to preach the big gospel story. Let's start at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, we won't go quite that far back. I'll save that for next Sunday. We'll move up just a little bit. And God made a man called humankind. That's what Adam, Adam means. God made a man called humankind and a woman called life. That's what Eve means. And humankind and life had a baby and then they had another one. They had two sons. They named them Cain and Abel. Humankind and life had two sons. Cain, a tiller of the ground, and Abel, a keeper of sheep. Tension began to rise between those two brothers. Cain began to lose sight of who his brother was. He began to think, is he really my brother? I think he's just other. In fact, I don't think he's just other. I think he's enemy. Because I'm harnessing agriculture here. 
And I got to have more land. And this other one with his flocks is impeding my progress. And dark thoughts began to form in his mind. And God came to Cain and warned him. said, Cain, your mind's not right. Your mind's not right, Cain. It's gone loose inside its shell. Sin is crouching at your door. And it's going to try to overcome you. You've got to overcome it. Or you are going to unleash something you can't imagine, Cain. But Cain did not overcome it. And in a field, the world's first battlefield, fields are not for battle, but that's what they become in the world gone wrong. In a field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and slew him. But the blood of Abel cried out from the ground, and God heard the voice of Abel's blood. And God came to Cain and said, Cain, where is your brother? And now as Cain has already been lying to himself, now he's going to lie to God. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to take care of my brother like he takes care of those smelly sheep? I don't know. But he did. And Cain was banished. He wandered the world as an exiled exiled man he went east of Eden and listen to the way the story is told he founded the first city he founded the Bible's trying to tell you something important Cain the killer of his brother whom he called other an enemy becomes the founder of the first city. The Bible's trying to tell you something. It's trying to tell you that civilization is built on refusing to see our brother as brother, calling them other and enemy, and killing them in the name of who knows what. So the world became Cain's world of conquering kings and cruel wars. That's what the world becomes. The world becomes Cain's world. Of conquering kings and cruel wars. Enter Abraham. Abraham is called by God to leave one of those cities, Ur of the Chaldees, and go in search of something. We're told that he was searching for a city whose builder was not Cain. He's searching for a city whose builder is God. The world has been built according to the architecture of Cain the killer. Now we hide it. That's what flags are for. It's good for hiding lots of things, including the bodies. But Abraham is called to seek for something other a city whose builder and maker is God. And the program gets underway with a family. Abraham and Sarah have a child by faith, Isaac. And then comes Jacob. And then the sons of Israel. And they are to be, they are to be a family of faith. This is to be a unique people. They don't live by force, they live by faith. 
They live by faith. Faith in God. But this chosen family, this covenant family, this chosen people, they end up in Egypt. Where one of these Cain-esque kings, known as Pharaoh, abuses these people. They're the other, they're immigrant, they're minority, and they are oppressed, they are enslaved, they become the source of cheap labor for the empire, and they groan under their misfortune. But God hears their groan, just like God heard the voice of Abel's blood. And God raises up a deliverer for them. His name is Moses. And Moses comes and he confronts Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no. And then the plagues began to happen. Pharaoh was going to learn that Hebrew lives matter. And finally, they're led out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and they begin a journey toward the Promised Land through a wilderness where they're going to learn some lessons. They go to Mount Sinai, and they're given the law, summed up in the Ten Commandments. Number one, no other gods. Number two, no idols. Number three, keep the sacred name sacred. Number four, keep the sacred day sacred. Number five, honor your parents. Number six, no killing. Number seven, no adultery. Number eight, don't steal. Number nine, don't bear false witness. Number ten, don't covet, because that's what caused the whole thing to go sideways to begin with. And they were given 603 other laws to help figure out how to navigate this, some better than others. Now, they get to the promised land, and they're given the promised land by God. And the idea, this is the plan, Israel, the chosen people, the peculiar people, the people of faith, will have no king, because God will be their king. God will be their king. They have no king. They're a different people. The nations of the world have their kings, but they're all the same. The world becomes Cain's world of conquering kings and cruel wars, but not this people. They will have no king. But in time, they said, but dang it, we want a king. God warned them, you won't like it. Yeah, but all the other kids have them. We want kings like all the rest of them got kings. Finally, through the prophet Samuel, God said, well, tell them, I'm going to give you a king. I'm going to tell you right now, you're not going to like it. They get a king, the first one is Saul. He was a disaster. They get a second one, David. And all in all, he was good because he's going to prefigure something that's going to come, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. But for the most part, they're all disasters. And there's a civil war, and they split into north and south kingdoms. And now, now they, got two, they don't have one king. they got two kings, and they're fighting each other. Eventually, it all goes wrong, and the northern kingdom ends up carried off as exiles into Assyria. And then 150 years later, the southern kingdom is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and the people are carried away captive exiles in Egypt. And now they're back to no king but also no promised land. But in time, they come back. They come back. They come back. Some of them do anyway. 
They come back to the promised land, but now they have no king. They have no king because they're still under the domination of other kings. First Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome. Their kings were Babylonian and Persian and Greek and Roman kings. They have no king. But finally, in the year 37, before, before C, they get a king, a king of the Jews. He is officially proclaimed by the Roman Senate, king of the Jews. His name is Herod. Herod the Great. And he was great. He was a great builder, great killer. And he's made king of the Jews. He wasn't even Jewish. Well, he's half Jewish. He's Edomian. And he's proclaimed the king of the Jews. And the Jews hate him because he's terrible. He's just another Cain. A, a Cain come lately. A conquering king with his cruel wars. And by the way, that's why Rome made him king. is because he fought some good wars. So ah, we'll make you a king. Patriotism is the last refuge to which a scoundrel clings. Steal a little and they throw you in jail. Steal a lot and they make you king. That's Herod's story. And so, they got a king of the Jews. But it's a fake king. It's not the true king. It's not the anticipated king. It's not the one they're looking for. It's not Messiah. And then, one night, in Bethlehem, a virgin has a baby boy. They name him Joshua. Joshua, Jesus. It means the salvation of Yahweh. A boy born of a virgin. And the angels tell the shepherd, he's the king. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the king of the Jews. And the stars tell the Magi. And the Magi come to Judea and come pretty close to wrecking everything. They went and told Herod, hey, where is this king of the Jews? King of the Herod says, I'm sitting right here. No, no, the one born king of the Jews. You were made king of the Jews, by but there was one born king of the Jews. Oh, there is, is there? And that's when the death squads came, killing all the babies in Bethlehem, two and under. But the holy family escapes into Egypt. And they're in Egypt until the death of Herod. And now they're called out of Egypt. See, see Jesus is going to relive the story of Israel. And now he's coming out of Egypt, just like they did so long ago. He comes out of Egypt, back to the promised land, and the holy family begins to live in Nazareth. And in Nazareth, Jesus becomes a carpenter. And at the age of 30, he slips off into the wilderness, and he comes back, and he's preaching the kingdom of God. He says, the time is fulfilled. It's here. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is within reach. Believe this good news. And Jesus is preaching throughout Galilee the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the rule of God, the politics of God, 
And they're not like the politics of Cain or Pharaoh or of Caesar. And then people begin to put two and two together. Some people, anyway, begin to figure out, oh, and he's the king. This Jesus of Nazareth, he's the one. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the Mashiach. He's the Christ. He's the christened one. He's the king. Of course, kings have to go to the capital. And so Jesus goes to the capital city of Jerusalem. And as he enters the city, people are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the son of David, the king of Israel. Now things are tense in the capital city. Jesus has been there for about three or four days when he says this. John 12, verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death that he was to die. And Jesus makes it public. I'm going to be crucified. But in my crucifixion, I'm going to draw, I'm going to drag all people to myself. I'm going to plunder the kingdom of Cain, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of death, the kingdom of hell. I'm going to plunder it, and I'm going to bring people into my saving orbit. But he has to go to the cross. Now, Caiaphas. Caiaphas, the high priest, gets wind. That Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet from Galilee, is in town. And people are beginning to call him a king. And this creates trouble for Caesar because for, for Caiaphas, because Caiaphas has no king but Caesar. He'll later say so. Now he plays a religious game. But it's the game, his religion is actually civil religion. He mouths words about God and Bible. But what Caiaphas actually worships, and those in league with him, is the empire. And there'll be that defining moment on Good Friday when Caiaphas takes off the mask and says, we have no king but Caesar. And so Caiaphas says, we've got to get rid of this one. And so it came to pass that one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, betrays him. Jesus is rested in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's brought before Caiaphas in a gathering of the Sanhedrin late at night. And Caiaphas only has one question. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, it's as you say, and from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas said, blasphemy, and he tears his robe. And he asked the council, what is your verdict? And they said, he is worthy of death. In the morning he's brought before 
Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, the authority of Caesar in Judea. And Pilate only has one question for Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not from this world. It's for this world, but it's not from this world. It doesn't come from the world of Cain with its conquering kings and its cruel wars. It doesn't come the way of Egypt. It doesn't come the way of Babylon. It doesn't come the way of Rome. You're going to have a hard time understanding this, Pilate. My kingdom is not from this world. Listen, for if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. But I won't let them fight because that's not how my kingdom comes. Pilate says, so you're a king then. Jesus says, it's as you say. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Anyone who hears my voice and loves the truth, hears what I have to say. Pilate said, truth, what is truth? And Jesus is taken away and he's scourged in the Antonia Fortress by the battalion. And then he's brought back. And Pilate says, behold the man. And Pilate continues his interrogation, but now Jesus won't talk. And Pilate says, don't you understand? I have power to kill you and I have power to release you. That's Pilate's truth. That's Pilate's truth. That the world as founded by Cain is the way the world is and the way it must be. That it is founded around an axis of power enforced by violence. That's Pilate's truth. And he's telling Jesus that's the truth. And Jesus says, no, I've already told you the truth. And so Jesus is condemned, he's taken to Golgotha, and he is crucified. And as he's crucified, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in that moment, the world is forgiven. The sin of the world coalesces into a hideous singularity and is sinned into the body of Jesus. But Jesus, representing the Father, forgives it all. The sin of the world is forgiven in mass. And Jesus breathes his last and he descends down into death. But death cannot hold him. And on the third day, he's raised. I said on the third day, he's raised. On the third day, Jesus Christ is raised. That's what we celebrate every Sunday. He's raised, and he comes back, speaking the first word of the new world, saying, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And he announces a kingdom of peace. And Jesus says, it's all forgiven, but we're not going to play that us versus them game anymore. Because it only leads to death. John Brown says, but the thing that scared me most was when my enemy came close, I could see that his face looked just like mine. The big story of the gospel is the story of how God became king in Jesus Christ. And we come to realize in Christ, because we can't see, we can't see, we're blinded, we can't see. We, can't, we, we think we know what God's like. And we think God's just a big Pharaoh, God's just a big Caesar. No, he's not. He looks like Jesus. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. We haven't always known that, but now we do. 
And through that, then we're able to connect the dots and we go, God is love. God is love. God is love. Jesus invites us into this kingdom, this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven, a kingdom of grace. You can't earn your way in. Your ticket's been paid. Come on, come in. It's free. It's a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom of forgiveness. The moment you respond, you experience the forgiveness that is yours in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. It's a kingdom of peace because it's not the kingdom of Cain and conquering kings and cruel wars. But most of all, it's a kingdom of love because God is love and we are created in God's image. God is love and we're created in God's image. When we don't act in love, it's a cruel distortion of who we really are. It comes from our blindness. That we cannot see that the other is not enemy. The other is sister and brother. And they are there to be loved. And in the end, death itself is finally and forever destroyed so that God may be all in all. Amen. Stand up with me. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's the story of how God becomes king of the nations through Jesus Christ. If you want to sum up, I just told the story in a half an hour. If you want to sum it up in three words, it's Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Let's confess our Christian faith together. Confess it from way down deep inside. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's confess our sins and receive forgiveness. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Amen. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love Him and for those who want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you 
It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.